Yes, uh, we know that song, right? In the late 1960s, then again in the 1980s, and once again in 1996 and beyond. That song meant one only thing, one thing only, Mission Impossible, right? The IM Task Force given an impossible assignment should they decide to accept it. But you know what? Every time they always did accept it. And somehow they always made it possible and brought back some good memories there. But you know, in the same way, the Lord Jesus, uh, in the completion of his teaching in chapter 5 of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but not only there, but just really throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus is going to give us uh, a, an impossible mission to accomplish. And then he's going to show us how to accomplish that mission. He calls to you and me as his disciple uh, to be able to pursue and accomplish an impossible mission. And we're going to see that this morning as we take a look. That's really the theme today, the impossible mission made possible. We're going to see three things this morning from this word in chapter 5 of Matthew, the impossible mission itself, the impossibility of the mission, and then remarkably the mission made possible. Turn, if you would, in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 5, if you have your apps or devices, Matthew chapter 5. The background is this. It is early in Jesus' ministry, and he is speaking. He's speaking to his disciples. He is calling them to a deeper relationship with him. Uh, He is speaking to seekers and skeptics, challenging them to come and follow him. And he's speaking to religious people who are the religious leaders there at the time. And he's challenging them because of their hypocrisy, their false teaching, their false beliefs. And he's wanting them to turn and see him as Messiah and trust in him. Jesus is speaking to us 2,000 years later. He's speaking to us as his disciples to grow closer to him, deeper in our love for him and service for him. He's calling out to any seekers or even skeptics who might be here today or in our world today, and religious people, people who are religious and yet not truly Jesus' disciples. All of that Jesus is going to speak to today. Chapter 5, look at verse 48. That's our theme text today. Jesus says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Wow. What an assignment. What a mission. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the time together this morning under your word, and it is an amazing mission that you've called us to. Impossible, it seems, and yet, Lord, show us how that that mission can become possible Uh, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come, uh, teach us from your word today, and show us how we may apply it to our life. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask this all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, let's look first of all at the impossible mission. Verse 48 again, you therefore must be perfect even as your heavenly Father is perfect. The Greek word is teleos. It means completed, to be fulfilled, to be brought to an end. The Lord Jesus gives us the impossible mission, what? To be like our heavenly Father who is perfect. We're just saying what? He is perfect in all of his ways. 
Now, man has striven to achieve perfection, right? If you like cars, uh, maybe you can think of, now I, I like, Lexus is a beautiful car, I've never owned one, never, never driven one, uh, but their tagline is what? The relentless pursuit of perfection. Uh, of course, uh, even cars like Lexus, they break down, they wear out, they uh, rust out, uh, they're far from being perfect. Uh, maybe in sports, uh, in sports I think of the late coach Hall of Fame coach Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers. He took the Packers over when they were an underachieving team in the late 50s. He called the team together and he said, gentlemen, we will have the relentless pursuit of perfection. We will not attain perfection, but in the pursuit of it, we will attain excellence. And of course, uh, athletes wear out. They break down. They make mistakes. They're far from being perfect. Maybe just in life and people in general, uh, we say things, we think things, we do things that demonstrate we're flawed and, and not perfect. I saw a couple of the uh, slides here that you might want to take a look at. Yeah, uh, we realize that uh, we do make mistakes, and I kind of like this one. Uh, I'm not quite sure what a, a senior vacuum and washing is, but I'm sure I qualify for that, and for only $15.95, that's not too bad. But on a much deeper level. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, fall short of the perfection of God. Our Heavenly Father is perfect. There is no or never will be any imperfection in Him. And the Lord Jesus says that we are to be perfect like our Father. But the problem is, in the preceding verses, Jesus has just shown us the impossibility of that mission. And so let's look at the impossibility of the mission. And Jesus says two things. One, it is impossible, first of all, because we have the tendency to retaliate. Verses 38 to 42, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist one who is evil. Now this is the fifth time in this chapter that Jesus has started saying something exactly the same way. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Back in verse 21, he talked about anger. Verse 27, he talked about lust. Verse 31, about divorce. Verse 33, about oaths. Now he is talking about retaliation. And in all of those, Jesus is looking at the tradition that the religious leaders had versus the truth of the Scripture, and then he is teaching the real meaning behind it and the application of it. And so in this first case, he's really referring back to Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 to 25. And here Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, but if there is any harm, then you shall pay life for life, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for bone, wound for wound, tooth for tooth, stripe for stripe. And that's become known as the lex talionis, equal punishment for the crime. This was a legal term. This was for the courts. And Jesus is reminding them that is the truth of the Scripture. But the problem is, uh, you know, as Jesus was looking at this, this had been given so that there would be no, uh, to, to keep from being extensive uh, crime, to be excessive punishment. He was eliminating that. But the religious leaders had taken that scripture and they had twisted it and pulled it out and they had changed it for their own selfish purposes. They had moved it from the courts to their own personal life 
and now allowed for retaliation to take place and not what the Lord had set up back earlier in the book of Exodus. Now, it's easy to be critical of them, but really, we're not any different, are we, than the religious leaders. We want, at times, to retaliate. Uh, maybe someone posts something about us or we, we listen to or watch a blog and we don't like what's being said there. Maybe it's a, uh, we retaliate against a spouse or an ex-spouse or an unruly child. Maybe it's a co-worker who is a, an annoyance to us. Maybe it's that motorcycle driver who is coming and just cuts in front of us when we don't see him. Maybe it's that neighbor who has a dog incessantly barking, even when you want to sit and have a nice little meal on your patio or study outside, and you keep hearing the dog all the time. There's that tendency to want to retaliate. Why? Because we have a fallen nature, and we want to get back at someone. I I came to know the Lord Jesus after my senior year in high school. Went off to college, I was being disciple, I was going to a Bible church, I got involved in the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and those were really big helps for me in terms of growing in my spiritual life. And I was playing college basketball, I had that opportunity to do so, it was my senior year, so I was learning these truths from Scripture, and we were going to play North Central College, I was going to Carroll College, now Carroll University up in Wisconsin, and we were playing North Central College in Naperville, and My folks lived around there. I had a lot of friends that lived around there. They were all going to come to the game. And actually, I was working in the summers at Wheaton College, my wife's college there, Wheaton College, a Christian college, and the head coach there allowed me to work their camp, and I was growing through that. And he was going to scout the game because they were going to play us. They were going to play North Central at some time. He invited a friend and said, hey, come and scout the game with me. And we have a, uh, there's a young man playing for Carol who's a Christian. He helps in our camp. So anyway, all these people are coming. We're playing. It's early in the first half. And there's a, a loose ball down there. And I was one of those guys who was always on the floor digging for a loose ball. And I, I, I dove on it. And I got it. And as I went to kick it out, one of their players came diving on me, happened to be the quarterback on the football team. Uh, we hit. And I got the ball. And I kicked it out. And the, and the team went down to the other end. We pushed it down up the floor. And I got up to go and join. And he grabbed me and he pulled me down. Now, I know all of these scriptures. <laughs> I, I mean, I knew what the Lord had talked about in terms of retaliation, but uh, my fallen nature got the best of me, and uh, I started wailing on him, and he started wailing on me, and of course the action is down at the other end of the court, and so we got some licks in before the ref saw what was going on, stopped the game, came, broke the fight up, and of course, what, kicked us out of the game, and so now in the first half, I have to go in the locker room and wait there till the end of the game. What made matters worse is that my mom had invited our team and friends over for dinner after the game before we were to drive back to Wisconsin. And now I had to go and uh, ashamedly be there with all of them and to be evident that that was a terrible witness for my faith. Just a terrible example of putting retaliation into effect. I hasten to say that my teammates and friends said I won the fight, but that's, that's not the point. That's not the point. 
Jesus then goes and gives us four examples of when we're prone to retaliate. First of all, he says in verse 39, when there's an attack on us personally, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, most people are right-handed. If you're going to slap someone on the right cheek, what do you have to do? You have to do it backhanded to do that. That's an insult. That's an assault. Uh, but that happens with gossip. It happens with criticism. When we hear that, right, it attacks us, attacks us personally. We don't like that, and we want to retaliate. And Jesus knows that, and that's why he brings that up. Second of all, in verse 40, we do it when there's an attack on us materially. He says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That's a legal thing in the courts. Tunic was the inner garment. Cloak was the outer garment. And they are taking it. Someone's wanting to take that away from you. Now, we use that for protection. We use it for warmth, for covering, for care, for modesty. And someone wants to take that. And when someone wants to take something from us uh, materially, uh, we balk at that, right? We don't like that. We don't want that to, to happen to us. And we may have a tendency to want to retaliate if someone does. Thirdly, Jesus says, when there's an attack on us, so to speak, inconveniently, says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now, how did Jesus bring that up? Well, back in then, the Romans who were in charge of the Palestine area, they were able to commandeer one of the Jewish citizens to take their luggage and their equipment and go up to a mile. Uh, of course, that brought problems. Uh, the Jewish people didn't like that. One, because it was inconvenient. They had a change of schedule. But second of all, in a sense, they were abating and, uh, and helping an enemy. The Romans were an occupied uh, Israel there, and they did not want that. And so they had a tendency to want to retaliate, not do that. And yet Jesus says, no, you need to go the extra mile. And fourthly, when there's an attack on us financially, he says, go to the one who begs you, give to them, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Uh, so someone who's really wanting our finances. Now, we think at times we've worked hard for them to earn them, to uh, grow those resources, and we certainly don't want if someone illegally wants to take it, but even legally, we want to hold on to it. And Jesus knows that, and if someone takes it, He's saying, we have an urge to retaliate. And so Jesus confronts you and me with the impossibility of the mission to be perfect like our Father because we have that tendency to retaliate, to look at what we think is an evil one doing some harm to us. So think about your week. Think about any time you might have thought or maybe even retaliated in some way this past week? Anything the Lord bring to mind? I know for me, as I was thinking about that question, I, I was thinking about my thought process of walking across my backyard and going to my neighbor that has the dog barking incessantly and opening the gate and... If the dog happened to run away, you know, I thought that. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So no worries, all you dog lovers. But nonetheless, just we experience those thoughts that keep coming up in our mind. Jesus knows that, and he says, not only is the mission impossible because you have a tendency to retaliate, but second of all, he says it's impossible because you and I have the tendency to hate. Verse 43, he says, you have heard that it was said... 
You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is now the sixth illustration that Jesus is giving of, you have heard it was said, but I tell you. And here, he's reminding them that the love of neighbor and care for them was commanded in the Old Testament. Now, very clearly, it was God's standard back in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. Listen to what Moses said here under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord, your God. Now think about that passage for a second. What did the religious leaders leave out? As yourself. And what did the religious leaders put in? Hate your enemy. That's not what's found in Scripture. And they had changed it. They had twisted it to meet their own viewpoint of life, their own expectations. It helped justify how they were living and their lifestyle. And they were teaching people that. In a sense, by limiting neighbor to be a fellow Jew, they allowed for the hatred of the stranger and the enemy. They permitted it and they actually promoted it. Now it's easy for us again to point our finger at them, but in the meantime three are pointing back at us. Why? Because we can show those same kind of emotions, can't we? We can have that well up inside of us, a tendency to show hatred to those who've harmed us or think differently than us, particularly culturally or theologically or politically or uh, educationally. They've got different opinions. We we can have a harbor of a bad opinion. They try to cancel us or someone we care for. They look differently than us. They have a different worldview. They have a different perspective on life people that pose a risk to us, the feelings of hate could develop inside of us. And Jesus knows that, and he says, that's why the mission to be perfect like your heavenly Father is impossible, because those dwell up inside of you. And you look at someone as an enemy and wanting to do harm to you. So what does the Lord bring to mind, to your mind, when you reflect on that this morning? Something maybe you thought about this week, maybe something you might have done to exhibit that emotion of hatred. As I was thinking about that in my life, I have to uh, admit I harbor some of those feelings and I have to deal with it uh, when it comes to the battle over abortion. Uh, For me, the scriptures, particularly Genesis 1 and 2, Psalm 139, Luke 1 and 2, point me to a deep pro-life position, plus our own life experiences. And so I've been that for 49 years. I prayed for the overturning of Roe versus Wade and rejoiced when that happened a few weeks ago. But I've been burdened by the fact that there's continual protests around the country and just a lot of, uh, just a lot of anger and hatred shown, and it's welled up in me sometimes. 
I contacted our state senator and our state rep to say I'd love to see you in this special session, make strong pro-life legislation. And Friday night, they passed, the governor signed it, and Indiana has the first strong pro-life legislation done since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. But I have to look at my own heart and say, Lord, I cannot harbor those feelings. Those people are not my enemy. Those people are my mission field. And I have to remember that. Martin Luther King said this, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend because it has creative and redemptive power. So why did Jesus show us we cannot do this, the impossibility of this mission? Why did he do it if he's called us to do it? Well, the Lord, in effect, says, see, Dean, see, you cannot do it. But I'm calling you to do it, to be my disciple. And that leaves me in a point of despair, of desperation. Well, Lord, that's a, that's a dilemma. How, how can I do it? And Jesus says, you can't. But, but, I've done it. Jesus says to us, I've done it. And Jesus showed us that he does not retaliate he does not hate. And so when the crowds would gather around Jesus to infringe upon his time and upon getting their needs met, what did he do? He loved them. He healed them. He fed them. He forgave them. When an outcast leper came through the crowd to Jesus, outcast, isolated, and, and set apart by everybody because he was a leper, what did Jesus do? He had compassion and he touched the man and he healed him. When tax, uh, tax collectors like Matthew and Zacchaeus came to him, people that were despised by the Romans, despised by their fellow Jews, what did he do? He said, come and follow me. When one of his 12, Judas, who had been with him for three years, brought a group of soldiers to arrest Jesus and came up to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and he came to betray Jesus with a kiss, what did Jesus say? Friend. He called him his friend. And when Jesus was brought before the tribunals and spit upon and struck and spoken against, he stood there and he took it. And ultimately, when Jesus was nailed to the cross to suffer an excruciating death, to pay the penalty of sin for you and me and give us the promise of eternal life, the hope of eternal life and protection from eternal hell, Jesus looked down on them and said, what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the Father's perfect will for his earthly life. Plummer said it so well. What a great quote. To return evil for good is devilish. To return good for good is human. To return good for evil is divine. And that's what Jesus did perfectly in his life. And so he spoke these words to you and me to say we can't do it, but here's the key. Here's the key for this morning. We can have his perfection accounted to us in our life. And Jesus says, this is the mission made possible. So he tells us briefly three things that we can do this morning 
to make that impossible mission possible. First is, Jesus says, I call you to repent. Chapter 4, it says, Matthew was writing from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Metanoio, it means you're going one way, you realize you're going the wrong way, and you turn and go back. That's what repent means. Jesus shows that we've fallen short of it, but that he is the perfect sacrifice for sin. He paid the price to live a holy life so that we could be, he could be our savior, that we could be saved. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I love Matthew West's new song that talks about Jesus in such a great way. It says, you paid the price. You took the cross. You gave your life. You gave it all with me on your mind. He did it with you on his mind says to repent, and repent means we are walking away from God. We need to turn. We, we're working towards sin and self. We realize we're going the wrong way, and we turn, and we repent, and we go back by faith to the Savior. We repent from sin. We go to the Savior by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says what? Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. For those who come to God must believe that he exists and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. So our life is one of repentance. Have you done that in your life? Have you turned from self and sin to the Savior? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. But for for those of us who have done that, who are Christ followers, who are following Jesus and walking with him, we need to humbly come to him daily because we stumble. We stumble and still fall short of this. We need to be humble because we stumble and fall. I was talking to Sheila out and she was just came back from Germany and back in 1517, I've got some years on me, I wasn't quite there in 1517, but uh, Martin Luther was concern as a monk about the, the, the inappropriate behavior going on within the Catholic Church and the doctrine, and so he wanted to change it. And so he wrote a 95 thesis, and on October 31st, 1517, he nailed it to the wall at Wittenberg. And the first of the thesis is amazing. It says, when the, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ says, repent, he willed that believers repent for an entire lifetime. Yes, we come to know the Lord, we repent that first time initially to be saved, but then we continually repent to be sanctified, to be made more like Jesus, to be made more holy, to be more perfect in that sense. The Apostle Paul, late in his life, after starting churches, after leading many to Christ, after training people for ministry, after doing all those things, he's writing to his young protege, Timothy, late in his life, and he says, Jesus Christ came to save sinners of whom I, what, am chief, not was, I am. Paul recognized that his life still 
fell short of the perfection of God and he needed to repent on a regular basis. Uh, Matt mentioned about the class next Wednesday night. Uh, it'll be looking at the meaning of marriage. I encourage you to participate. Tim Keller in his book says this, the experience of Jesus' grace makes it possible to practice the two most important skills in marriage, forgiveness and repentance. Only if we are very good at forgiving and very good at repenting can truth and love be kept together. The importance of repentance. And so we recognize when we have a feeling of retaliation or of hatred and we repent of that. Second of all, Jesus says, I call you to respond. In Matthew 6, the next chapter, he says, pray like this, request like this, forgive us our debts as we forgive what? Our debtors. We come to the Lord, we ask for forgiveness. We recognize we can't do it on our own, but we say, Lord, come into my life. Forgive me and be my Savior and Lord and live your life out through me. That's why the Apostle Paul would be able to say, uh, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live not I, but Christ, what? Lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He would write to the Philippian church, he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. So we request, Lord, come, fill me with your spirit. Live your life out in and through me. And forgive me where I have fallen short on that. And daily, give me that pardon that I need and that power that I need to live for you. Finally, Jesus says, I call you to respond. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, if anyone, any man, any woman, any young person would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and what? Follow me. Deny, take up cross, follow. John MacArthur said this, the only person who is non-defensive, non-vengeful, never bears a grudge, and has no spite in their heart is the person who has died to self. And so as the Spirit of God leads us, he guides us not to retaliate, but to turn the other cheek, to give materially, to give without a grudge, to go the extra mile, and to not have that hate welling up inside of us, but to actually love our enemy and to pray for our enemy because they are our mission field. And when we manifest that kind of Christ-likeness, when we demonstrate it to ourselves and to others, that in reality is the good way to the better life. The good way to the better life. I close with just a great reminder. This year I'm a baseball fan. This is the 75th year anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. It was instrumental not only for baseball but for all of American society. Branch Rickey was a Christian man who owned the Dodgers and he wanted to make a statement. He knew something had to be done. There was a great injustice being done in America that only white players were playing in Major League Baseball. And so he, made a, he had to find somebody and he wanted a Christian man and he identified Jackie Robinson, a man of faith. But he said to Jackie, he said, I'm looking for a man who has the guts not to fight back, not to retaliate, not to hate, even though you're going to be hated and verbally abused and maybe even physically abused, but you have to have the guts not to fight back. And Jackie Robinson said to Mr. Ricky, a life 
uh, my life is committed to that. I will not physically attack, I will not verbally attack anyone. And because Jackie Robinson did that, he broke that barrier and allowed deserving black athletes and athletes of other colors to come and play in Major League Baseball. And on Jackie Robinson's tomb, he died young, 53 years old, said, quote, a life is not important except in the impact it has on others. Close quote. Because two men refused to retaliate, two men, and Branch Rickey took a lot of heat for that, two men refused to hate A sport was changed, a country was changed. Jesus did the impossible so that you and I can experience making the impossible possible. Will you acknowledge that? Will you accept that? Will you act on that? Oswald Chambers, great man of God, says, do the impossible, and as soon as you do, you will know that only God made that possible. And you know what? So will others, to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and for showing us that in Christ the impossible can be possible. Lord, we extend an invitation today, if anyone needs for the first time, to put their faith in Jesus, to turn from sin and self by repentance and by faith receive Christ. May they do so today and make this the day of their salvation. Lord, as we prepare to take the Lord's table, we're reminded to examine ourselves. And as we do, may we repent of and ask forgiveness for the times we've retaliated, times we have been selfish and unloving, times we've harbored bitterness and unforgiveness and even hatred. And may we cling to your word that says, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Lord, prepare our hearts to partake of your elements today, for we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're a follower of Jesus and know him as your Savior and Lord, you are welcome to partake of the elements today. If you would, take the cup and bread that's by you. Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, broke it, and said, this is my body given for you, do this in remembrance of me. The bread. The same night, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my blood shed for the remission of sins. It is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, think of me. The cup. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to participate in your table and for your forgiveness for our times of retaliation and hatred. May we be reminded, Lord, by you living in us, we can see the impossible to be perfect like our Father, be made possible. And we give thanks and praise to you in Jesus' name. Amen.